We are winding down our uh, our series in the book of Exodus. We just have three sermons left. And there's going to be kind of a unifying thought to those last three sermons. And I think it's actually a thought that runs through. Uh, it's, of course, a, a biblical thought and it runs through even the, the whole story of Exodus. But these last three in particular, I think, bring this to the front. And it's this it's this truth that God's saving grace creates a new reality in your life. God's saving grace. So when, when God rescues you, He actually transforms you. Paul even goes so far, a writer in the New Testament goes so far, he uses the image of an old man, new man, an old self and a new self. That when God saves you, uh, He actually creates a new self that is gradually overcoming the old self. Right, so uh, God uh, creates a new reality in your life, and what I and when I say that, I don't mean that we're, we're not talking about wishful thinking. It's more than that. Uh, we're not talking about even the the power of positive thinking. If you're familiar with that movement, right? Where if I just if I just think it to be so, it will be so. What Christianity offers you is. A new reality, or, or rather a reality that your life is brought into conformity with. Right? It's this, it's this reality that's always been there. And you may not have, and you may not have ever seen it. But when God comes to you and He opens your eyes, He gradually transforms you into that reality. Alright? And we see that in shadow form in Exodus. Now when I say that, shadow form, what do we mean? Alright? The story of Exodus comes in at the very beginning of the Bible, right? It's very early on in the story. And everything that's happening in Exodus, as grand and as wonderful as it is, is not the main story. It points to the main story, and that is Jesus. Everything that's happening in Exodus, what Moses deals with, what the Israelites go through, they're pointing us to someone greater, and that someone greater is Jesus. So when I say that, that, in Exodus, we have a, a new, that God's saving grace creates a new reality. We only see that in glimpses, in shadowy form in Exodus, but that really comes to bear in the person of Jesus. And we're actually gonna, we're gonna unpack that a little bit today in today's sermon. So, but I just wanted to get you ready. As we finish out Exodus, we're gonna be talking about this transformed life, what it means to be saved by grace and transformed by grace. Uh, and we begin by reading Exodus 34. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, turn there, Exodus 34. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in one of the chairs in front of you or behind you. Feel free to grab that. Page 75 is where you'll find our passage for the day. Exodus 34, verse 27. Just so you remember, Moses is back on Mount Sinai. This is his last trip. It's on Mount Sinai that he meets with God. He's been in this moment before he got God's law. Uh, but then they were cut off, interrupted uh, by the Israelites uh, worshiping the golden calf. And so Moses, what we've seen past couple of chapters is Moses pleading with God to accept his people and forgive their sin. And God, we saw last week that God accepts that plea and decides to remake the covenant. Okay, so what's been happening is basically this. Uh, God and Israel are making wedding vows. And no, no sooner does Israel say yes to her vows than she breaks them. And so now God 
comes back in and he remakes the vows. He remakes the covenant that she broke. And we now have the follow-up to that. Exodus 34, verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, For in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out... And told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses. That the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again. Until he went in to speak with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven. Would you help us uh, help us to understand uh, this bizarre passage? Something that... Seems very strange to us, is very strange to us. Would you unveil our eyes? Help us to see your truth, what it is you're saying here, and what it means for us, God, that we may be transformed. Help us to see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Her name was Sarah. Uh, We were friends in high school. Uh, And in high school, I had zero interest in religion whatsoever, zero interest especially in Christianity. Like maybe many of you growing up in the Deep South, I had grown up in the church and found it to be wanting. And so in high school, I had basically turned my back on Christianity uh, and probably in large portion to many of the Christians that I knew. Um, But not Sarah. Uh, Sarah was a friend of mine. Uh, we had several classes together. We were in the band together. Um, yep, I was in the band. I can admit it now. All right. Um, but uh, so, so Sarah was a friend of mine, but Sarah was different. Uh, I was familiar, maybe as probably many of you are with, uh, again, growing up in the Deep South, many, many so-called Christians uh, who I really didn't want anything to do with, but there was a genuineness to Sarah that I could not put my hand, that I couldn't put my finger on it. There was an attractiveness to the way that she lived, to the way that she talked to me, uh, to the way even that she cared for me. Our value systems were very different. We were very different people, and yet that did not deter Sarah. And so it was years later, just a few years later, uh, when I began to wrestle with God, wrestle with the truth claims of Christianity, with religion in general, with Christianity in particular, uh, that at one point I just simply prayed, okay, God, I don't get this. I'm going to need some help. And 
Just a couple of weeks later, I'm sitting in uh, sitting in the student center at Alabama, and in walks Sarah. And we sit down and we have a cup of coffee, and she introduces me to the person who would, who would end up uh, sharing the gospel with me and leading me to Jesus. Now, why do I why do I share that about Sarah? Um, because it, it it dovetails nicely with where we're going today. When God is at work in your life. Um, it leaves a mark that other people can see, right? Love, love leaves its mark. Think of, uh, you, you can notice this in, in married couples, even, even a couple of years in, you can notice that two people who are married, they begin to change, right? Their mannerisms begin to shift, their habits begin to change. But you really see it, uh, when you look at couples who've been happily married for decades, right? Isn't it a little bit strange that they even begin to look like each other, right? How is that possible? We change each other, right? Love leaves its mark on the other. Uh, and what Christianity offers us is actually deeper even than that, that the love of God leaves its mark in our souls. We are transformed people. Sarah wasn't showy. Uh, she wasn't flashy. In fact, she's a rather... She's a rather quiet person, and maybe that was part of the attraction, uh, was the humility, the genuine humility. She, you could tell she did not live for herself or for her agenda. Uh, she was genuine. She was loving. And so I, I use her as an example to say that God's work in your life leaves a mark that other people can see. Now, Let's walk through that because I don't want you to be discouraged, right? A number of us, as soon as we hear that, we go, oh, God, there's no hope, right? I've got, like, I'm probably one of those people that Kevin's talking about, like, driving people away from Jesus because of the way that I act, all right? So don't don't lose hope. Don't be discouraged just yet. Let's talk about that, what, what we mean by that. And we're going to see it kind of in two parts in this passage. The first is this, right? We're going to see God's glory shining in Moses, and then we're going to see God's glory shining in Jesus. So we're going to look at this in a twofold way. God's glory shining in Moses and then God's glory shining in Jesus. So let's go to Exodus 34. Uh, and let's just, let me just recap for you what's happening here, right? Moses is on the mountain. He's been meeting with God. He receives these tablets of the testimony, right? God, what we call the Ten Commandments, God's covenant. He's taking it back down the mountain. And as he makes his way down the mountain... His face is shining, and he has no idea, right? That his, we're, we're not 100% clear what exactly this looked like. Was it rays of light beaming off his face? Did it look like a good tan? I don't know, right? But it either, either way, God, um, God meeting with Moses had visibly affected Moses' face in a way that he couldn't tell. And so as he approaches uh, as he approaches the people, as he comes down the mountain now for this final time, um, the people run away, right? They are, they see Moses' face and they are terrified, right? They, they run away from Moses, they want to hide. And so, um, this whole passage, what's, what's all this about? What's going on with Moses' shining face? I mean, is this something that I should want for myself? How would I get that? Like, what does this have to do with us? So, uh, first let's talk about what this, this is all about. Why, why does Moses' face shine when he comes down from the mountain? There's a couple things going on. The first thing, why, why 
is Moses' face shining? The first reason is this. It authenticates Moses. This is God authenticating Moses' leadership. I want you to remember, let's, let's actually just go back and look at it, what happened the last time Moses was on the mountain this long, okay? Um, he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God gives him the tablets of the testimony. And then we see this in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Right? So they basically write Moses off as dead. Right? As for this Moses... This man who brought us up out of Egypt, right? This guy who worked so hard, labored over us, carried us through the wilderness. Forget him, right? Time to move on. Aaron, it's a new day. Let's get up and go. So they totally negate Moses' leadership. They totally try to forget about Moses and move on. And right, then Moses has to come down the mountain. He's angry. It gets bad. And then Moses goes back up the mountain. So at least one thing that's going on here when Moses comes down with a shiny face is that it tells the people Moses is the leader. It authenticates Moses, right? It basically says, this is my servant, listen to him. That's what. That's one thing that's going on with Moses' shiny face. The second is this. Not only does God authenticate Moses... But God also accepts Moses. And this is the far more important part. Because if God accepts Moses, it means he accepts Moses' people. Moses' shining face is basically a stamp of approval, right? God has said, I accept, right? Remember that Moses has been on the mountain pleading with God. Praying that God would forgive his people, praying that God would go with his people and not forsake them, and God has accepted his pleas. Let's look at Exodus 34, verse 9. We're going to step back a little bit. I just want to, I want to show you Moses' prayer here. If you were with us last week, you remember that, that Moses actually prays that God would show him more glory. And so what God does is he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is how Moses responds to that. Moses, in Exodus 34, 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Did you catch that? God, please go with us because we are stiff-necked. Now, I don't know about you, but that's usually not how pleading works in my house. Right? When, we're, when, when you're pleading for something, when I hear pleading in my house, right, usually it's the first part is a plea for, uh, Dad, please give me something I don't deserve, right? Or don't give me what I do deserve, which is punishment, Right? Uh, and then it is followed by a promise that I'll never keep. Right? So, this, I mean, I don't know about your house, but in my house it goes like this. Uh, please don't spank me. I promise I'll never do it again. Right? That's how our hearts work. Uh, please don't take the screens away. I promise I'll do better next time. Right? Our, our children do that, and you know what? We do that. We do that in our relationships with each other. 
hey, listen, I'm really sorry about that. I promise I'll never do it again. You know that's not true. But you make that promise anyway. And what I love about what Moses says right here is he says, God, would you please go with us? If we found grace in your sight, please go with us because we're going to do it again. Did you catch that? God, please go with us because we are stubborn. Because we are stiff-necked. Because we are rebellious. What I love about Moses' prayer is that, is its honesty. He's honest about two things. The persistent sin and wickedness of the human heart. He doesn't say, hey God, we're gonna, we're gonna do better next time. Please don't leave us in the desert. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, no, we're stiff-necked. We are stiff-necked. We're gonna do it again. Right? So he's, he's real about He's real about the persistent sin of the human heart. But he's also real about the even more persistent grace of God. God, please go with us. We are stiff-necked. Forgive us our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now, I don't know about you. Think about that word for a minute. Think about inheritance. If you you have some long-lost relative somewhere who's going to, you know die and give you a wonderful inheritance, like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Right? Probably wealth beyond your imagination. Moses looks at God and says, please take us for your inheritance. Like, what do you, what do you give the God who has everything? Stubborn and rebellious people, right? They're good for about a week, and then they're going to worship another God. Here! Congratulations! Right? I, I want us to, I want us to see how God, how Moses comes before God, right? Like he real, Moses realized he is on his face, bowed down. He ha, he knows he has nothing to offer, and that's where you and I need to be. We have nothing to offer God. This is no this is no salesman or politician. Forgive me if you're both or if one or the other, right? There is no right. What what a salesman does. Right, he comes in with a warm smile and says, hey, here's what you have to offer, here's what I have to offer, let's negotiate. That's a transactional relationship with God. Is that where you are? Is your relationship with God transactional, right? God does, it's a tit for tat, right? God does this, and I do this, and all is good, right? We just keep the machinery going. Because that's not the way that Moses is approaching God. Moses is approaching God saying, I got nothing. We've got nothing. In fact, we've got worse than nothing. We're stiff-necked and rebellious. Would you still please go with us? That's what it means for, for God to accept Moses. He accepts, he accepts Moses, not because Moses or Israel have anything to offer, but because, out of sheer grace and mercy. Guys, if, if we can grasp that, if that truth gets a hold of your heart, then that's where, transform, that's where transformation begins. If as a church, that truth gets a hold of our hearts, we're dangerous, right? There's, there's nothing that can stop us. So God authenticates Moses. God accepts Moses because of his grace. And, and Moses' face proves that to Israel, right? Proves to Israel that God has mercy on them. So, so God's relationship to Moses is actually physically reflected on Moses' face. And it happens every time Moses meets with God, right? Every time Moses goes in to meet with the Lord, we saw that at the end of the passage, he takes the veil off and his face shines again when he comes back out from the tent. 
So every time Moses goes to meet with God, God imparts this glory onto the face of Moses, this reflected glory. All right, what does this mean for us? The first thing it means for us is this. We become what we behold. We become what we worship. You remember the uh, the old slogan, you are what you eat? Right? Um, if you're looking clueless at me, we still use that in school. Uh, you, you are what you eat, right? The idea that your your diet really impacts how you do physically. Okay. All right. Theologian Greg Beale wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. We are what we worship. And he says this. What people revere, they resemble. So go ahead and go ahead and take that grid and, and press it down over, over your last week. We, whatever we revere, we resemble. Press that down over your last month, over your life. What, what do you resemble? And you begin to have an idea of what you revere. We become what we worship. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. So look at the trajectory of your life. Is it towards restoration or is it towards ruin? Again, it will give you an indication of what it is that you revere. We become what we worship. And so for Moses, being on the mountain as he was close to God, he didn't even realize it was happening. His face, right, he saw... Moses got to see more glory than any human being ever saw. And it was still limited. But even from that limited view of glory, Moses' face actually beamed with light. So if, if Moses in drawing close to the Lord, right, it's a, it's a visible representation of what happens in our hearts. When we worship, we become something. So the question is, what are you becoming? And you'll have an idea of what it is that you're worshiping. A couple of things that I think are helpful to notice. I think it's important that Moses doesn't notice, right? Moses is totally unaware that being close to God has changed him. And what that at least tells me is he's not thinking about himself, right? He's not arrogant. He's not saying, hey, don't you want your face to shine like my face? Right? Uh, nor is he falsely humble about it, right? He's not like, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't really all that shiny. It's fine. It's fine, right? He, he's, not, he's not self-focused one way or the other. He doesn't even notice. He's not even thinking about himself. He's probably so caught up in what he's been doing for the past 40 days as God sustained him without food or water, right? He's all taken up in bringing this good news back to Israel that God will, in fact, go with them. He doesn't even notice that his face is shining. I think we ought to pray for self-forgetfulness. We ought to ask God to give us this trait of self-forgetfulness that we don't even notice uh, how God has changed us. Um, also notice that uh, the people are scared. That they, that they don't fully understand. And this is, this is true as well, right? That, that when God changes you, that won't be welcome news to all kinds of people. People who don't understand what it means to be with God will, in some cases, even be repulsed. Not always, but the people are afraid. And I think the reason the people are afraid is because, 
Well, think back to Exodus 20. At the end of the Ten Commandments, the very first time the people heard God speak, what was their response? Don't speak anymore. We don't want to hear anymore. We're terrified. Moses, you go speak to God for us. We're going to throw you into the fire. We're going to hang out here so we're safe and sound, right? And so I think the same thing is, is at work here. As Moses comes down the mountain with this shining face, the people are reminded that God is not like them. They, they see holiness reflected in Moses that they do not have, and they want to run away. So that highlights even kind of the issues with Moses' glory. Uh, one, it's scary to the people, right? It reminds them that they're not holy. But did you also notice that it doesn't last? It fades. It goes away. It's only temporary. And it was only limited to Moses. No one else got a shiny face. Just Moses. So, what does that mean for us? What what hope do we have for real change, right? If that's what it looks like to reflect God's glory, then what about us? I don't see any shiny faces in here, right? Um, at least not in the good sense. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. What hope do we have for real change, right? Uh, and Paul tells us that it's not the glory in Moses that changes us. It's the glory in Jesus. So turn with me uh, to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians 3. Paul actually spends a good while on this, uh, interpreting this passage for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 965. I want to, so, Moses' glory was temporary, it was fleeting, it didn't last, it wasn't for everybody. How does Paul answer, uh, how does Paul respond to that? How does he talk about that? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? What's he talking about? Ministry of death written on tablets of stone. He's talking about the law. He's talking about those tablets that Moses has in hand coming down the mountain. He calls it a ministry of death. He calls it glorious. So it was holy and it was good. It had glory. But it was a ministry of death. Why? He goes on. Uh, verse 9, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, so the law is a ministry of death and condemnation. We're going to talk about that. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What in the world does Paul mean? What he's telling you is that the law written on tablets of stone cannot, cannot save you. It cannot give you life. It can only bring condemnation, right? It can only tell you that you're guilty. And the penalty for being guilty is death, which is why he calls it a ministry of condemnation and death. That's Moses' ministry. Now, it was, it was, again, Paul will say later in Romans 7 that the law is good and perfect and holy, but it does not have the power to save. And so Paul says, you need another ministry. You need the ministry of the Spirit, which is the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel. That ministry he calls the ministry of righteousness. 
Because the Spirit gives, Jesus gives what the law cannot. Jesus gives righteousness which the law cannot do. If you're only going to approach God on the basis of the law, you're only going to get so far. And it will ultimately kill you. Which is why Moses' glory was temporary, because it was not the last word. Let's go to verse 11. So Jesus' life has power to save where Moses' law does not. Second um, Corinthians 3, verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, he's talking about Moses, Moses' ministry, the law came with glory, but if it, it was being brought to an end, it was temporary, much more will what is permanent have glory. What's he saying? Moses' face would fade. Moses would eventually die. His glory was a fleeting glory. The glory of the law is only temporary and fleeting. He says, we are in a better position than Moses. We are in a better position than Moses because what we have is permanent. Moses has a shadow. We have the real thing. Moses had a glory, but it has now been squashed, superseded, done away with by Jesus' glory. And Jesus' glory is higher and better because it is permanent. Not only because it gives life and righteousness, but because it is permanent, eternal. It will not go away. All right? And then, most importantly, Jesus' glory does not have to be veiled. Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his faith, face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So, what's he saying? That until you see Jesus through the law, there is a veil over your heart and you cannot understand it. Until you come to Christ, the veil remains over your heart. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom from bondage to the law. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we, we end where we begin. When God is at work in your life, it brings about transformation. And it brings about a more powerful transformation than what Moses went through. It brings about a more permanent transformation than what Moses went through. Right? We become what we worship. So how do we transform? How do we experience change? Paul tells you right there. With unveiled face, look to Jesus. You want to learn to be... Look at Jesus who was endlessly patient. You want to learn, you, you, you struggle with bitterness and anger. Look to Jesus who was persecuted and had every right to be angry but refused to be. 
You wrestle with doubt. Plead to Jesus for help. If you want to be transformed, if you want to begin to experience that shaping, molding power, right? The glory of God at work in your life. If you want to go from one degree of glory to another, you must worship and reflect on Jesus. We must become fixed on the God of grace himself. If we want to exhibit the grace of God to other people, we must become fixed on the God of grace himself. We're only transformed as we look at Jesus. So whatever else you think Christianity may be about, it is primarily about this, that we we come to Jesus and we look at him and we just keep looking at him. And as we do, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Spirit who is, uh, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus was with his disciples. This is from Matthew 17. Uh, and he takes his, his closest three disciple, uh, closest three disciples, James, Peter, and John, uh, and they go up on a mountain. Uh, and like Moses, oddly enough, uh, they wait six days and then they go up. Uh, and as they're on the mountain, uh, Moses and Elijah actually appear and meet with Jesus. And as they are meeting with Jesus, Jesus is transfigured. Not just his face, not just beams of light, but his whole person becomes blazingly bright white. And then a cloud descends on the mountain. And do you know what voice the disciples hear? Do you know what they hear? They hear, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the new and better Moses. And as we come to him, pleading just as Moses pled for the Israelites, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus transforms us. And we get shining faces. Not outwardly, but shining faces like Sarah's. A compelling savor of life to those around us. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this passage. Thank you for words of life. Lord, for more than that, we thank you for the spirit of life who even works when our minds are hazy. God, who even lifts the veil for us and helps us to see Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us. Help us to come to Jesus and be renewed and transformed, that our lives would reflect the glory of God, the glory of the God of grace, who has rescued us and is making us new. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.